Hello, listeners. Welcome back to the St. Paul's Morning Report podcast. I'm Daniel Ennis, and I'm joined again by Stefan Voye and Barry Casson. And our guest host today is Katrina Dutkevich, who has been on the show before and blew my mind then. And I'm looking forward to uh, uh, what she has for us today. How are you doing, Katrina? I'm doing well. Thanks for introducing me. Hey, Kat. Hey, Danny. Yeah. Hey, you guys. And Katrina, this time, don't feed me the answers. Last time I got the answer, and it wasn't very good. (laughs) Yeah. It, 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 me and Steph consider that cheating. Yeah, if of that's course not it's cheating. Clear. Yeah, I see. I Cause, see. Because this is a competition for who's the Absolutely. better doctor. Absolutely. <laughs> okay. I know who the better doctor is here. I'm willing to, to take to position three. I, I think we all know, so we don't even have to say it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's Katrina. All right. All right. Katrina. <laughs> let's, yes, all say it on, let's all say it on three. One, two, three. <laughs> Katrina. <laughs> All right, uh, Katrina, yeah, uh, hit it. Okay, all right. Uh, So thanks for having me back. It's been a little while since I've been part of the show and uh, also a little while since I've had a chance to present a case. So hopefully things aren't too rusty. Um, But I have a new case for you today and one that I saw relatively recently. Uh, So I will dive right in with a bit of the story. uh, And then as we go through, um, we'll uh, focus on a few particular topics and particularly, I think, looking at the way that we think of things sometimes. Uh, So uh, this was a 35-year-old Caucasian female, previously well, uh, who came in with a two-week history of abdominal pain and intermittent rash. She tells you that three weeks ago, she noticed a petechial rash on her lower legs. She doesn't use the word petechial, but she's actually got photos on her phone and shows you what it looks like. This uh, progressed to involve her entire legs bilaterally. And then she began to develop some joint pain beginning in the ankles with subjectively some associated swelling. And she states that this progressed then up to her knees. The joint pain and swelling itself lasted only a few days and then resolved. Two weeks ago, so Three weeks ago was the leg rash. Then two weeks ago, she developed a rash petechial as well on her arms. And this is now beginning to fade. Uh, She finds that overall, the rash is improving. um, But maybe in the last few days, she's had one to two new lesions that appeared. Also, two weeks ago, she began to have some abdominal pain. Initially, this was uh, epigastric discomfort, which then moved down into her lower abdomen. And for the last week, she's actually had difficulty keeping any food down. She's had vomiting, uh, but no hematemesis uh, and some non-bloody diarrhea. So no hematochesia, since we were talking about that earlier. Her abdominal pain, she notes, uh, is worse with food intake. On review of systems, she's not had any fevers, weight loss, or night sweats. She's not had hair loss, hearing changes, or vision changes. She has no eye pain, dry mouth, oral or genital ulcers, no nasal crusting, no cough, chest pain, or shortness of breath, no nail changes or enthesitis, no history of Raynaud's phenomenon, no dysuria or hematuria per se, although she noticed that her urine was darker in color and more concentrated than it previously was. Her past medical history uh, includes menorrhagia, which was felt to be secondary to uterine fibroids, which I believe she had identified before. And then she also has migraines with aura. She's otherwise well. She is taking an oral contraceptive pill, tricycline, that was started one month ago. 
And then she did have previous prescriptions for bilastine, 20 milligrams once daily, but she has not taken that for some time. An efeconazole 10% topical solution, also not taking. Uh, and then that's really it at present. Uh, she has no allergies. She works in administration. And later I learned actually as a massage therapist. Um, she's a lifetime non-smoker, drinks occasional alcohol, but hasn't had any for the last few weeks. No recreational drug use. And she has no family history of autoimmune or rheumatologic disease and no cancer in the family. I will tell you that, um, so she actually saw her GP two weeks ago, um, who referred her already to a dermatologist for this rash. And she had a skin biopsy performed. Uh, so you already come in with that information. And from the skin biopsy, um, you're told there was a cutaneous small vessel vasculitis. But unfortunately, due to the lack of reagents in the lab, they weren't able to do direct immunofluorescence staining, and they won't be able to do that for three to four weeks. Six days ago, she had come into the emergency room for abdominal pain and was actually started on pentoprazole and then sent home. And then five days after that, she was seen by internal medicine in consultation, uh, who had some ideas as to what might be going on, and then actually started her on prednisone. And then she was referred to rheumatology, saw them via telemedicine because of COVID-19, but she was in so much discomfort from her abdominal pain during that telehealth visit that she was sent into the hospital. Whoa. I thought you were going to stop so much earlier in the case because I thought we would like cleverly come to the same conclusions that internal medicine did, but you, uh, you trucked right on through. So that means there's so much more to the case, um, which is good news. Uh, because then the episode won't be five minutes long, but bad news because <laughs> it's going to get harder from here. So um, maybe like Barry, what's a, what do you think when you see cases like this? Yeah, I mean, I, but I, th I think all of us, you know, in hearing the case, this would be, I mean, I, I would guess all our first thoughts are henoxonline purpura. I mean, that's the sort of description. She has a leukocytoclastic vasculitis. She has joint pain and abdominal pain. And had no problems before, but I think there were, I guess that's that would be my initial thought. But obviously, we need to do a few more things. But I'm interested in other people's thoughts. Hey, thanks, Steph. Um, you're talking about good news and bad news. I mean, I have more bad news, which is that I don't have a rheumatology fellowship, so uh, that's bad news. I also um, I didn't realize this was a rheumatology podcast. God, <laughs> every cool case here is a rheumatology case. <laughs> Just like um, in real life. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> yeah. So uh, I, what I hear this case, I think, you know, um, you know, when, when you sometimes when you panic, you pee a little bit and I, and I want to have a diaper on, I want to have a diaper <laughs> for my brain. My brain is, um, is I have overflow in the brain right now. So, so the first things that I started writing down, I wrote down question mark HSP. So that's, I feel that's a little small win for me. Um, then I circle, I wrote down sarcoid. I don't know why I wrote that down, but I did, and I circled it. Then I wrote down question mark infection, and I circled that too. And then, I don't know if it's relevant, but it's, I mean, she just started a new medication right before all of this started, the pill. So, I don't know. I'm, I'm intrigued by that. Um, yeah, totally. So, yeah, I think we'll probably all kind of have the same list going, but that's these are my sort of preliminary organizing thoughts I, i'm i might be from like the darker timeline your darker timeline because i had written why not hsp because 
I expect that we're being presented a case that looks like one thing and not something else. And I agree, like, first of all, like, new medications are always like a little bit of a, a trigger to like, think about if that could be the cause. But also like using OCP in someone who has migraine with aura, I thought was kind of like maybe non-standard or uh, w- would try and avoid. But yeah, I, I think uh, HSP or or like kind of any of the small vessel vasculitides right now are, are like on my list. So uh, yeah, that's where my like head's at right now. And and Katrina, did you say, w- were there any preceding infections um, like within the last few months? Uh, no, she had not had any infections. Uh, okay. Cool. The so other I thing guess. about about tricycline, I I met you know they, you have to fact check this, but I I met someone a little while ago and they were in the middle of being switched from tricycline to a different uh, like hormonal preparation, and I think it, tricycline has either like been taken off the market or is being taken off the market. It's, that medication specifically is triggering something for me. So so mm. just with that little bit of knowledge, I'd probably go and and look that up and like make sure that there's not some new warning about that medication. But yeah. oh, interesting. I think my understanding was they stopped making it because it was an older medication rather than it being an adverse effect. But okay. I might also be wrong about yeah, that. Yeah, I'd have to look that up. But uh, the one thing we do know, and I think everybody's alluding to, we're talking about etiologies, but she has a small vessel vasculitis and the symptoms we think are related to postprandial probable ischemia and her other symptoms are pattern recognition. So we're all trying to sort out why. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right, Katrina, any uh, any other news for us? Yeah, so um, I mean, before I give you more information, because we haven't gone through any of the investigations or her examination, I just wanted to touch on some of the things that you've talked about. Um, so first off, just um, for our audience, going through a little bit about HSP, because we haven't said that explicitly. Um, it's the most common systemic vasculitis in children, and 99% of cases happen in the pediatric age group, although not all, for sure. And I'm sure, Danny, you could tell me a little bit more. Um, there does tend to be a male preponderance, um, occurs typically in the fall, winter, and spring. And this was a case was seen in the spring heading into summer. Uh, and then typically there's a tetrad of clinical manifestations, palpable purpura, arthritis or arthralgia, abdominal pain, and then often renal disease, proteinuria or hematuria. Um, so I can see, and, and definitely I'm sure audience can too, why we were leaning towards that as a potential diagnosis for this patient uh, off the bat. I also just wanted to touch on the terminology from the biopsy itself. And that's why I wanted to give you that information up front. Um, because to me, they actually call this a cutaneous small vessel vasculitis. Um, whereas you'll notice that Dr. Kassin jumped uh, initially to leukocytoclastic vasculitis. And so I wanted to know for myself, was there a difference between those things? Um, it's actually interesting when you look into it, a cutaneous small vessel vasculitis itself is a single organ skin isolated small vessel vasculitis or angiitis, which is often leukocytoclastic. And then the difference is that there's no systemic vasculitis or glomerulonephritis. So we can talk about that, but that's really all that they can say from the biopsy because they don't know the rest of the picture. The leukocytoclastic vasculitis is a histopathologic term that defines a vasculitis of small vessels in which the inflammatory infiltrate is composed of neutrophils. So they're somewhat interchangeable, but a little bit different in in what they're getting at. And so I think that was just 
interesting to me that there's maybe a little bit of um, a little bit of variation in the terminology that they use. Along with those things, um, you can have a hypersensitivity vasculitis. So you've already alluded to, you know, potential drugs in her history that could be causing this, and that's specifically a small vessel necrotizing vasculitis, uh, and then serum sickness or an immune complex small vasculitis, which also fall into similar category. Uh, so just so that we've touched on some of those terms. So I'll give you a little bit more in that case in terms of her exam. Uh, so she is seen in the emergency department now. Um, she's vitally stable, afebrile. Her blood pressure is 108 on 74, heart rate 70, saturating 98% on room air. Uh, she's alert. She's oriented. She looks well. She's not in distress compared to the telehealth appointment. Uh, she doesn't seem to be you know, in too much abdominal pain at the time. Uh, she does not have any cervical adenopathy. There's no oral ulcers. On cardiovascular exam, her JVP is not elevated. She has a normal S1, S2, no murmurs, no extra heart sounds, no edema. Her lungs are clear, good air entry. Her abdomen soft, but mildly tender on palpation, predominantly in the lower quadrants. There's no hepatomegaly or splenomegaly. At the current time, she does not have any tender or swollen joints. And then she does have this petechial rash on her legs and her arms that's more distal than proximal. Um, she does not have any nail pitting or onycholysis. We did not have a dermatoscope at the time, but she didn't have any obvious dilated capillary loops. And her basic investigations that you start with, she does have an elevated white blood cell count, 15.1. Uh, and previously, this was 4.5 and then 10.0, although I will remind you that she was recently started on prednisone. The white count is predominantly neutrophilic, 13.6. Uh, her lymphocytes were a little bit low, which uh, in the current times of COVID always gets everybody a little bit excited. Um, the rest of her differential was normal. Hemoglobin 142, platelets of 340, normal coags, uh, electrolytes, really unremarkable other than her potassium was slightly low, 3.4. Her creatinine is 94 and it was 90 uh, when last checked and 77 previously. So it is a little bit high. GFR is still normal. Uh, lactate was normal at 1.8. Glucose is normal. Uh, her extended electrocytes just show a low phosphate, 0.50. Liver enzymes are normal. Her lipase is normal. Uh, CK was low, not elevated. LDH is normal. She's not pregnant. Beta HCG is negative. Her CRP has gone from 2.2 previously up to 7.4, so slightly high. TSH is normal. Uh, her urinalysis does show 0.3 protein, 0.5 ketones, and then 21 to 50 red blood cells in the microscopy. Uh, urine culture just shows skin flora, and then her urine albumin to creatinine ratio is elevated at 17.9. And as part of her initial workup, she has had an abdominal ultrasound done uh, to elucidate any potential etiology for her pain. So based on that, they've said that there are no gallstones. She does have multiple, approximately 10, small echogenic foci in the liver, uh, with the appearances most consistent with multiple hemangiomas based on the radiologist's report. The largest is in segment three, measuring 1.5 by 1.3 by 1.4 centimeters, and her kidneys, spleen, and pancreas appear normal. So I'll, I'll stop there. Yeah, go on. In the land of youth, can you give us her HIV status and her sexual status? So we did not. I think her HIV test was still pending at this point, uh, hadn't come back. And then she is sexually active with uh, one single sexual partner. 
And has she had any STDs or is, she, is it possible that she's had STDs? She has not had any known STDs in the past. Uh, I'm not sure whether she was specifically tested. She had not had any concerns nor any um, discharge or, or pain or anything to suggest. Thanks. Uh, yeah, so, so I was going to stop there. Why are you asking that, Barry? Well, I guess, you know, we're looking for the possible etiology of, of this vasculitis, which small vessel vasculitis, which has the pattern of Henoch-Schonlein, but um, so could the antigen be syphilis? Could the antigen be uh, an STD of some sort? Could she have HIV? It's just given the fact she's 35, she's recently started an oral contraceptive. Yeah, I guess that's that's a, at least a pathway into this. That's one of the considerations I'd have. I wonder if, like, I, I'm not um, skilled enough to do this myself, but we see that there's, like, protein and blood in the urine and an elevated uh, urine ACR and uh, a creatinine that perhaps is kind of out of keeping with her age and habitus, maybe. And kind of like we can kind of shortcut things if we find that she has cellular casts. So if, or or if she has, like, dysmorphic RBCs, we kind of get a, a, a sense that like it's a it's more GN and that kind of I, I think would you know wrap things up nicely or, or at least limit like the extent of our, our diagnostic considerations to things that have GN or, or glomerulonephritis as part of it. So I think early on, I wouldn't, I, I definitely wouldn't be shy about asking uh, nephrology if they would mind coming by and spinning the urine. Also for their opinion, but uh, <laughs> primarily well, mostly to the <laughs> most, mostly for uh, yeah their their urine work. Well, we're spinning the yarn; they can spin the urine, but I'm not sure that the yarn or the urine, or maybe interchangeable. I'm not sure that they they do spin the urine anymore or the yarn. They probably they, spin I, the yarn. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes they look look at the urine under the microscope. That is that's still an nephrology. Yeah. Well, okay. So is there anything yet that that's like telling us it's, it's, or convincing us it's HSP versus any other like small vessel vasculitis or medication uh, rash? Like, is there anything more specific after those investigations? I think it's more adding to what we kind of already thought we knew. Any other opinions out there? I'm just, this is all too neat and tidy is my only opinion. (laughs) This is yeah. too too short for this yeah. presentation. I feel like we've a, we've uh, we've fallen neatly into Katrina's trap. Yeah, yes. how I feel. Walked right into the spider web. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree entirely. Okay, Katrina, enlighten us through. I mean, if you're asking us what we would do next, we we've kind of alluded to the number of investigations, but we're all incredulous of the fact that we've made the diagnosis in five minutes. Mm-hmm. I, and and to <laughs> yes, but to be we have not nailed hsp yet it's it's too bad we didn't have the immunofluorescence but i think mm-hmm. we're all like in the small vessel vasculitis camp and whether that's like a primary phenomenon or secondary to um infection or drug of, of some kind uh you know that's that's the realm we're in um, well danny let me ask you if 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 they had done iga mm-hmm. and it's staying positive would she have hsp i i think so mm-hmm. she'd have iga vasculitis but is that hsp um, yeah, I, 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 you know, I think HSP, I, this might just be like a nomenclature thing. I think HSP was generally to describe like IgA vasculitis that typically would be in young people with abdominal symptoms and arthritis and like a hundred percent of them having purpura and like a 
three quarters of them having renal involvement, whether it, when it happens in adults, we're allowed to call it HSP. I, I, I honestly can't say that I, I know for sure. But I think the presence of the IgA staining would kind of narrow things even further. So yeah, and I mind's so. a question, not not. Uh, I don't have any content knowledge that would suggest it oh, isn't. But okay. I, I, I thought you were going to Columbo me and no, be no, like, no. Yeah, one more thing. <laughs> no, no, I no. Um, I, I mean, I, I, it was really a question in a question. Like, if we saw this, is it a slam dunk? We go home and that's it. Because I'm, I don't know that. Yeah, I, I don't think not yet. Not yet. I don't think. All right. I think Katrina is about to Columbo all of us. No, I, I wanted to start just by saying I think that was part of why I wanted to bring this case up. I think not so much for uh, you who are in the virtual room with me, but um, uh, mostly just to say when you're handed a case that looks like something, it's a good time to take a pause and make sure that you're thinking of the other things that this could be. So the situation in which I saw this case is that a rheumatologist had sent in this patient and basically said to us, we can talk about it now, I think this is HSP, uh, but she needs management of her abdominal pain because she's not coping. And so I think it does take a certain level of uh, forethought to just pause at that moment when you've had kind of the expert in the field tell you that it is something to think about uh, what else it could potentially be. And you've mentioned some of those things already as we've discussed, but I think that was an important learning point I wanted to touch upon. Um, can I just correct that? Can I maybe comment on your nomenclature? It's, sure. I think people that are involved in different aspects of medicine have an emphasis. Right in that area. I'm not sure these always have an expertise in that area. And but but I and I say that with all due respect, but it's their area of interest, but it may not be their area of expertise. I think we all know who you're who you're talking to in this group. No, 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 not at all, Danny. <laughs> uh, you have very you have more content expertise than, than all of us. I'm just I, saying I wasn't that, I wasn't that, fishing for that, but thank you. No, no, I, I but what I'm suggesting is it's when we say you, someone goes to a cardiologist and they have a different opinion or they have an opinion, we say that's an expert opinion. And I I sometimes think that's an emphasis opinion. It doesn't necessarily downgrade anybody else's opinion or or it, it isn't the overruling opinion. It's a, that's a bit good of point. a philosophy. That's a very reasonable way to put it. And I think exactly echoing what I was trying to say. So keeping uh, a broad net and um, placing value on your own uh, diagnostic skills as well. So I think you've alluded to some of the testing that you would uh, like to get in terms of narrowing things down. Um, Dr. Kasson's talked about the possibility of a sexually transmitted infection. We've talked about other infections in general. Um, we've mentioned sort of other small vessel vasculitides. We talked about HSV or HIV, sorry. I wonder just in the age of choosing wisely, because I could see this being a case where, uh, you know, somebody might come in and send off the full rheumatologic panel. If you wanted to tell me sort of particularly um, what tests you think would be high yield for this this patient. No, I'd, I'd be very interested in Stefan's first approach and Danny's first approach because of how, sure. they, how they would see it the same or, or dissimilar. Mm. Go ahead, take it, Steph. Okay, so step one, I put my diaper on. <laughs> you change it, um, put on a fresh I mean, one. Here we have, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, my approach is, in general, I like testing hypotheses sequentially. And so, you know, my first thought was 
I certainly wonder whether this lady has Hinoxia online purpura. That crossed my mind. Uh, I think the skin biopsy is a good idea. I think all the urine studies were important, like mostly to to both support that diagnosis and to understand what complications of the vasculitis she may have. I I'm still interested in the fact that she's just started a, an oral contraceptive pill. And so there's not a diagnostic test there, but I would probably recommend at this point that she stop it and read more about it and see if there's any case reports of, of vasculitis being sort of triggered by that particular medication. And then there, I think, I, you know, I learned this probably from you, Barry, is like a lot of autoimmune and other inflammatory conditions can really be mimicked by infection. And so I would want to make sure, for example, that like, I understand that, that she's not infected, that, that like she has a chest x-ray and we've looked her urine and we've done a blood culture and so on. And then if, if I'm satisfied by all of those things, I'm not sure I would do like a shotgun rheumatologic screen. I'm not sure of the value of getting ANAs and ANCAs and, and a whole bunch of other serology here and compliments and whatnot. I, I know that almost certainly those things were done. I'm never, I, I don't really see how they would contribute here. Like I don't, I, and, and when I say I don't see it, I mean, I don't mean to say that I don't think they're going to contribute. I mean, just mean, I don't understand how those results could contribute. So yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd get the skin biopsy and I'd wait. Um, I think the other thing that I want to hear from all three of you is like, what is your threshold to treat this person empirically? Like, Maybe she's not that sick and you have time, but what if they said, we're not going to be able to do the immunofluorescence for a month? I'm not sure I'd want to wait. I, I think I, I almost have enough information here that I would probably empirically treat. So so to answer your question, like, I think all the things that need to be done are done, and I'd want to make sure she doesn't have an active infection. And otherwise, I'm just sitting around to wait for the results of her immunofluorescence. Is that wildly different than what you would do, Danny? No, I, I don't think so. I, you know, I, I think the maybe only subtle adjustment is that if it's HSP or it's just early vasculitis or it's cryo or it's, you know, hepatitis or HIV or parvo related, like wh- whatever it is related to, all of them take completely different paths in terms of treatment. So I think sometimes in, in some of these cases, like I agree, I, I kind of like, I hate myself for like sending like quote unquote shotgun approaches sometimes like on even on this podcast we've sometimes said like we've had guests or some of us have said like i never regret scanning the whole body like that that makes me unhappy because like well then that's just like the star trek tricorder what is what is the doctor of that at the same time i don't want it to be about me and my ego about diagnosis i think that what i worry about is if i make it too sequential like send drip by drip look for diagnoses, which I know is not what you're suggesting. We just delay getting back the tests that like I know I want. Like I definitely want an ANCA, even if like it, it, the IGA biopsy is going to take time to come back. And I know that. And and so there is stuff that we can do in the meantime that if we find it a few days early, maybe we can get this person worked up and ready for immune suppression if they need it or infectious um, treatment uh, if they need that. So I I really struggle with this. Um, I think I try and send like the common, what I perceive as kind of cheaper stuff up front and save the expensive or or rarer stuff like anti-GBM and cryo, cryofibrinogen, like for like my second round. So I think probably you and I just have maybe subtly different first round, second round um, investigations um, with just tons of overlap, I think. 
That's, I mean, you, uh, to me, it sounds really quite similar. You're both, uh, uh, this is how I interpret it. I think you're both saying the same thing. I think that um, I would just emphasize what Steph said is that my biggest concern usually is not the specific phenotypic category we put this person in, is that we're not mistreating something that we could should be treating differently. And the most obvious, besides removing medications and in other obvious things, is the infection that could certainly underlie this whole thing. And that's the thing that I probably worry about most. I know that lymphoma and other things could masquerade this way, but I, I worry less about those than more about missing an active or I guess, I guess an active infection. Yeah, we've, we've talked about before, like in, in cases where we're thinking about starting steroids, which I, I think is what everyone was thinking about here is like, okay, what, like what infection is also on the differential for which I would be unhappy if I started steroids before I had that back. And, and so, you know, hepatitis, uh, HIV, I wouldn't be thrilled to have given those people steroids. I think very short term, no, like the, the unlikely that I'm going to cause suddenly an opportunistic infection or sudden like fulminant hepatitis. So I'm not sure there's an infection on my list that I'm like completely uncomfortable um, having missed for a day or two uh, while they're but pending. I, but I guess, Danny, what, what I'm saying, maybe I don't, what Steph is saying maybe as well, is that it's not the fact of treating with prednisone or some sort of steroid preparation that's the issue. It's the not looking for the infection. Mm-hmm. So you're saying yeah. waiting for a day or two and that, and then you'd know you probably wouldn't cause any harm, but right. treating as if, and not looking for the infection to me is the biggest issue. True. All right. So I will give you kind of, largely, I think it's the shotgun approach, but maybe slightly pared down <laughs> some more in terms of what uh, Danny was getting at that he wanted. So she is HIV negative. Dr. Casimir would ask for that. Her ANCA are both negative as well. Those are actually ordered by the previously previous internist, so lucky you get the results back. Uh, her hepatitis B core antibody is negative. Surface antibody is less than 10, so not immune, but surface antigen negative as well. Hepatitis C antibody is negative. She also had an anti-streptolysin O titer that's negative. Syphilis is negative. Her ANA is negative. Complement C3 and C4 are normal, 1.04 and 0.23 respectively. Cryoglobulins are negative, blood cultures are negative, and then as I said before, we're uh, still waiting for them to have the reagents back in the lab to do that uh, IgA testing, and that I'm not making that up for the sake of the case, that was the true, <laughs> true scenario. So then I wanted to ask you, really the reason that she's in hospital right now is because of her abdominal pain. Whether or not at this point we can attribute that to HSP, I'm wondering what your approach would be towards figuring out or treating or or what you would do about the abdominal pain that's really her limiting factor steph what do you think um yeah i don't know i mean i expect the treatment of her vasculitis to to help i don't know any this is actually just a gap in my knowledge i don't really know about specifically the management of abdominal pain in hsp but what she's what you said katrina if i understood it is that she had postprandial abdominal pain did she have abdominal pain not postprandially uh, she she really hasn't eaten anything for probably the last three or four days. And so she has very lit, less pain now, but she's also not being able to eat anything because anytime she does eat, she has such bad pain. So it is postprandial, but so, so I guess to support what, I mean, what we think we know is, I think at this point I do an angiogram. Like a CTA of the abdomen? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's pretty reasonable. I, I think that it's probably like because the 
like if it's HSP, it's small vessel and it's it it would not likely show up on a CTA. I, I think you and I have the same worry that like we're doing it because it feels like a very reasonable test to do, but we also like kind of know in our hearts that the angiogram component of it is unlikely to get us very far. I, well, I don't know what I would do of, if I would if just do If we saw a lot CT. of microaneurysms, that might put us in a bit of a different thing. If we saw- That's it, true. Yeah, I mean, and, and the other thing is that let's say we, we, we have small vessel vasculitis, which is what this sounds like, but let's say we saw- She's got large lesions in her larger vessels. That would kind of change the the game a bit. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I agree. And just bringing in the fact that she's a 35-year-old woman, did you have any thoughts about CT versus MR? Or would you need to uh, ask that question of anybody? I think I I always worry about that in in young people um, more than, than the aged. But I think like... Uh, the duty like upfront is, is to like pick the right test that is going to get you the right answer in an acceptable amount of time. So if an MRA could be done five days from now, she just can't, she can't eat for five days and we don't want to start treatment until we have some imaging of the stomach to make sure it's not, you know, a, a big giant infection in there of some kind, like then, then an MRA is just not, not the right test because it'll take too long. So yeah, I mean, I would certainly ask my radiology department, like, this is the situation. Uh, if it was an older person, I'd do a CTA. Could you squeeze this person in for an MRA today? And if they say no, then I, I would chat with the, the patient and, and, and see if they are okay with the, the CTA. I actually don't know. Maybe you can help me. I'm not sure uh, the sensitivity and specificity of each of the tests and how they, com- and how they compare to each other. So I, I don't know if uh, Danny knows, I can't tell you the sensitivity and specificity, but we essentially had the similar approach to, um, to Danny and we asked the radiologist kind of from the perspective of her being a, a young woman, whether an MRA would be acceptable and less with the time constraint, but more actually whether it would give us the appropriate information. And so not being able to provide you sensitivity and specificity, their report back to us was that if we were looking for any larger vessel involvement, then a CT angiogram would provide that information more. So, and I think you do come back to, obviously, it's a a conversation with the patient. This comes up time and time again, but I think just important to, to make sure, especially as we're going through an interesting case, I think that we're, we're thinking about that, which, which it sounds like you are. So uh, she does go on to get an abdominal CT angiogram, and uh, largely this was to look at those large vessels, see if there was any involvement. Uh, so the comments back from that test is that the aortoiliac, visceral, and mesenteric arteries are all patent. There's no large vessel occlusion, atherosclerotic disease, or any clear vasculopathy within the visualized segments. The liver is smooth in contour. Um, they do see a 12 millimeter low attenuation lesion without any significant enhancement in the inferior aspect of segment four or five that they suspect res- represents a cyst. Uh, and then separately, there's a lesion in segment seven seen on the ultrasound that um, is favored to represent a small hemangioma. Uh, and um, another seven millimeter lesion in segment seven uh, that actually is only seen on one phase of the scan, so felt to be insignificant. Uh, gallbladder is normal, spleen, pancreas, adrenals, kidneys, all normal. 
Uh, her GI tract, they comment, is unremarkable within the limitations of CT scan. She does have small volume ascites within the peritoneal cavity with no peritoneal nodularity, no size, significant lymphadenopathy, um, but they do comment that her bilateral sacroiliac joints are fused. Uh, there's no bony changes identified within the lumbosacral uh, spine. So uh, I'll pause there and see if that changes your thinking at all in this case. Well, that's unexpected. I, I did not think you were going to tell me anything like that. That's the way we felt as well. Huh. Did she have any symptoms of that? Was that ever really part of her history? Chronic low back pain, stiffness, any of that stuff? No, we went back to talk to her and ask her about it. And, you know, she said, maybe sometimes I have a little bit of ache if I've been sitting too long, but nothing significant that had bothered her. And they were fully fused? Yeah. Ew. Uh, yeah, that's a pretty big surprise. I was not expecting that. Like the seronegative arthritis, ankylosing spondylitis, and uh, psoriatic arthritis, reactive arthritis, IBD related, are, are not like a common cause of or associated with like LCV or skin vasculitis or HSP in general, to my knowledge. But um, I, I think we're probably uh, moving into a knowledge gap for me. What do you guys think? I'm, I'm just, you, you audibly gasped. When she gave us that imaging, I, mean, I was going and, to and run you, over to you. I was run over to your apartment, Danny, and check on you. My God, you, you almost uh, fell down. Yeah, I, you guys can't see it, but I gra- I clutched my pearls and <laughs> fell on my fainting couch. My, my gosh. <laughs> um, well, I'm not going to clutch your pearls, but I'm. What I am going to suggest. <laughs> Thanks, Barry. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but what you know? It's 2020. It really, We're not supposed to touch yeah. each other's pearls. But but <laughs> it's it really is surprising that. That uh, I mean, this is we didn't do the test for this reason, which which is, I suppose the other thing is that it's interesting. I, I was just thinking as we, I was listening to the results, this I thought you were going to talk to us about liver because we were told initially that she had multiple lesions in her liver, which were just thought to be hemangioma, and we all well, listen. I don't know, I can't speak for you, but I certainly heard it and then discarded it and talked about other phenomena when really there is pathology, whether it's pathology that's significant or not or it's there's an anatomic change so so um yeah i'm surprised that uh, with these all these hemangioma that they didn't all light up and one looks like a or something looks like a cyst and one looks like something so whether it's a different phase and i know danny it's not what you were talking about about the the fusion it it doesn't dissuade me i guess from the fact that this still could be infection Hmm. and i also don't want to like assume that all fusion of the SI joints is, is angspond. You know, it, it can be associated with various infections. Your favorite Whipples can cause yeah. sacroiliitis as yeah. you well know. Yeah. Um, but like familial Mediterranean fever can cause some sacroiliitis and, and, and like th- there's all sorts of weird stuff out there that um, like maybe there's something bridging the gap between these two symptoms that, that is, is just simply outside my, uh, nothing's, nothing's triggering in my brain. Being like, oh yeah, of course, it's a uh, dance <laughs> disease. <laughs> it's uh, it's Steph's disease. Go ahead, Katrina, help us now. All right, all right. I, <laughs> I lo- help me. <laughs> Save help me. me. Help me. I, I love it when you take take things exactly where I want them to go. So, uh, part of my question with this was um, similar to, to you, what else could cause a sacroiliitis? Because our first thoughts were as well, but you know, seronegative spondyloarthropathy or IBD related arthritis, 
there are not a lot of other things that I was able to come across. In fact, I didn't read about Whipple, so thanks for adding that one to my list. But an infection, SI joint infection, can cause this. Usually then it's unilateral, it's quite severe, there's usually other signs of infection. Something that looks similar is osteitis condensans ilii, which is just the you know, kind of more sclerosis uh, pattern, but it's usually on the iliac side of the joint. There's not usually fusion, so really you wouldn't see this pattern. Uh, familial Mediterranean fever that you mentioned. And then um, as we discussed, there's an association with IBD. So uh, in one study, um, 4 to 18% of patients with Crohn's had asymptomatic sacroiliitis. And then another study, 32% of patients with IBD without symptoms of sacroiliitis had abnormal SI joints on CT scan. So, uh, and then Dr. Kasson, you're right, as you pointed out, there are several lesions within the liver, um, which we had also discounted, but um, you've both commented on on different aspects. So um, I'll maybe ask then with this new information, um, where you would uh, want to go next in terms of investigation or, or maybe treatment or what your next steps would be. So I think I'll take it this time because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump into an area. I really, it's like, I know the name. Romania. But I couldn't tell you where on the map it is. I couldn't tell you its relationship, but I just know the name. And so I guess with the same degree of confidence, I would I would order a PET scan if I could. And and I can't, but but I would order it because I would want to see areas of active inflammatory uptake, I guess which is the FTG, uh, to see these these variations and to see activity, if there's activity in the liver, if there's activity in the SI joints, if there's activity other places, because I think that I'm a little bit lost now because we're having signposts that go in a variety of different directions. And some of these I think aren't leading home. And some of these, I'm not even sure are signposts, but they're just not, they're just mirrored. So that's what I would do if I could do it. I don't know if I could do it. Barry, our biggest listenership is in Romania. We, we're gonna have to cut, we're gonna have to cut that from the episode. Uh-oh. <laughs> yeah, thank you. I I don't, I, I don't know I about that, a, but, yeah. but this 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 case is exhausting. After this, I'm gonna need a book arrest. Um, <laughs> that's for you. Barry. I can't believe you. I can't believe you made a Barry joke. <laughs> that is excellent. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Steph, what do you what do you actually think? I don't I don't understand the PET scan comment. I mean, I, I, here I would say I'm um, this is like I'm not going to start ordering tests. There's so much reading I would have to do to to understand. Like this is one of these cases where I come home. It's either after clinic or after a day on the ward, and I'm and I spend like two hours like like basically writing on the mirror and lipstick, trying to figure out all the pieces of this puzzle. Like I, I, this is, I'm really home Steph. (laughs) I live at the hospital now. My Um, my version of that was, you know, um, I, 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 uh, news articles connected. (laughs) Exactly. You know, I, I'm so, um, I don't know. And I'm not going to just start ordering a bunch of tests because I, I just, I, I, there's so much reading that I would have to do to be comfortable even with the basics of what's going on here. Like, I don't even know if these findings either in the liver or in the, or in the sacrum are related to the previous problem. I I really don't have any strong sense of that. So yeah, I, I I wouldn't order anything yet. I'm totally lost. Yeah. This is a, this is a real piece of work, Katrina, a real (laughs) piece of work. I think I, I would cast in style, 
trying to go back and see if like, okay, are there any like, you know, really important pieces of data from the case that um, I I didn't pick up before. So I would probably re-ask a bunch of the review of systems you've already uh, given us for free um, that I'm, I'm sure I would have missed some of those in my initial assessment. Um, you said Caucasian, just wondering like what's her uh, ethnic background, if she's willing to answer. She's Romanian. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> There's your hook. <laughs> yeah, that's the Shyamalan twist ending to yeah. the case. She was Romanian the whole time. <laughs> she's uh, she's from England, actually, and I think if I recall, she maybe had some Scandinavian on one side and Scottish on the other, something like that in her history. Ah, I kid. But I, and, I don't know she, what that means. Does she try? I mean, you know, I. I I think the reason I But the reason I had to order the PET scan is not because I know anything about PET scans. It's just looking for inflammatory to see if there was inflammatory foci in these areas or whether these were just incidental. Um, and and I guess maybe there's an. I mean, is she camp? Does she camp? Does she uh, is she gone up north? Has she Ooh. done anything? Any yeah. any other parts of the history that we've missed with her? No camping or sort of wilderness experiences. She did move here from England about a year ago, but she otherwise hasn't traveled very uh, anywhere really other than uh, to be in England and come to Canada. Stays indoors. No, yeah. no outdoor, <laughs> no outdoor activities. I, I, I wonder, like, maybe we are interpreting some of the abdominal pain, perhaps in the wrong way. We saw this through the lens of HSP, but if we see it through the lens of fusion of the SI joints and abdominal pain and you like because like something's not fitting perfectly here unless there is a just an association or diagnosis that we just all don't know so maybe we say like okay let's let's sideline the LCV even though that's like a really clear active problem right now and like could this just be IBD um, and and therefore would she benefit from like an EGD or C scope to look at you know to get some biopsies and, and have a look. Should we do an MRI of the SI joints to, to answer the question that Barry has, which is like, are these active at like, is, is this actually inflammatory, even though it's already fused, it could still be a, a source of inflammation. But I'm not sure that if we got that answer, that if the SI joints are inflamed, that that tells us what's happening elsewhere. Like it just means she has sacroiliitis, right? And, and so I, I wonder what I would do with the information that it's not just inactive sacroiliitis, it's active sacroiliitis, or it's not just old, it's also old and active. I don't know that that changed like the group of diagnoses yet. So I, I, I may focus in one, if, if we can't get that, I, if that IGA wasn't done, I would re-biopsy and, and get it done. But uh, yeah, I think I might be moving down the GI path. What do you guys think? Yeah. yeah I mean, as you well, say I, that, like, you know, so I, I have this, history written down two weeks two or three weeks of abdominal pain rash uh then she's got some other joint pains swollen ankles diarrhea yeah why, why? <laughs> it's funny that i we i closed quickly or not closed but i mean i the first thing to pop into my head was hsp when when now as as you say that danny and as i retell that story to myself I, ibd also has all those things uh yeah yep yeah yep. Yeah, All right. so maybe maybe if, we, if yeah. we want to be if we want to tie the IBD, I mean, in this, I mean, TB has all those things. Oh, I, I haven't seen LCV with TB. 
Is that so? I think it does. Oh, uh, I'd have to check, but it certainly has all the other features, but you're right. Maybe it's not the uh, the perfect fit. And we haven't seen lymphadenopathy, so I think that's really unlikely. But Ugh, TB. What a bastard, am I right? <laughs> with, I all this, I uh, with all this abdominal pain, has she been hungry? She's actually start. <laughs> you got you, me with you, that one. Yeah, you snuck that in there. I almost couldn't tell if you were joking. <laughs> hey, Steph, Steph, focus on the case. We're trying to solve it, and you're yeah, sitting there writing jokes in your in your notebook. He's trying to eat. Oh, all right. So um, TB was not on my list when I went and looked up the causes of leukocytoclastic vasculitis. Obviously, everybody uh, has different lists and things that come up, but not something that I had come across. Um, but I do think it's interesting that, um, so Danny, you came back to the idea of endoscopy, whereas um, I think Dr. Kassin and um, Dr. Voya, you had moved uh, off in other directions. And interestingly, when, when this woman was sent into hospital, one of the, again, coming back to the rheumatologists who had seen her previously, one of their suggestions was actually endoscopy. And now that I look back at it, I'm not sure why, other than we weren't sure what the cause of their abdominal pain was. And so we had talked with GI when she initially came into hospital and they had sort of hummed and hawed, should we do this endoscopy, should we not? And then with that finding of um, sacroiliitis, that moved their hands uh, a little bit. Um, so she did go on to have a colonoscopy done, which showed uh, ulceration at the ileocecal valve with further aphthous ulceration and smaller ulcers ranging up to five millimeters throughout the distal portion of the ileum. They did take biopsies, but the assessment by the GI team was that there was evidence of active inflammation, most in keeping with Crohn's disease. And so they suggested increasing her dose of prednisone for a kind of steroid uh, treatment of what seemed to be active Crohn's um, with a planned taper uh, then over the next few weeks. Interestingly, so... Well, can I, can I just comment? I mean, of it's, course. it's a very difficult, you know, Crohn's disease or inflammatory, these are difficult diagnoses to make even when they're classic. But now we're, we're involving a less classic presentation and trying to pick and choose. And I'm not sure how helpful those biopsies are, except to say that she's got inflammatory changes in her bowel from, we already know she has vasculitis. Wait, so are you saying that you, you've not you can't yet commit to a diagnosis of inflammatory bowel disease. Right. Well, you're very disciplined, Barry. I was like, yes, we did it. <laughs> well, no, but, and I can no, get no, back I, to my video games. You're like, probably going to wrap this thing up. <laughs> you're probably <laughs> you're like, correct. Yeah. It just doesn't, I mean, there are just parts that, that don't hang together. Hmm. Oh, I, I was, I was quite satisfied. Um, Steph, satisfied or unsatisfied? Steph, wake up. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, the, are these are these biopsy findings pathognomonic? Like, are they? I don't know. It does. I mean, it does feel. Actually, you know what? I don't know. I, I, I I'm off my game here. I'm totally lost. I, I, I <laughs> I'm just I, the the error bars. The error bars around what's what's going on here are so wide for me. I would say, like, just from a strictly epidemiological standpoint, in a 35 year old Caucasian woman, I mean, IBD must be what like orders of magnitude more common or more likely than HSP, right? Right. So sometimes I just approach things from that perspective, like just which of these things is more common. And then, you know, it's like, you know, uncommon presentations of common things are still more common. And I, yeah, so I guess even just from that perspective and the pieces do fit together reasonably well, I, I yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm now closer and happier with the diagnosis of inflammatory bowel disease than I am with HSP for sure. 
Wow. So, yeah, I, I agree. That makes a lot more sense to me. But you're right, Barry, like, it, like, not all ulceration and not all colitis is autoimmune colitis or is, or is like, ulcerative colitis, uh, like its own disease. Sometimes it's Bechette's and sometimes it's other vasculitides or sometimes it's this or that. So like, you're right, it doesn't nail it. But uh, I think we're definitely moving closer. We're, uh, we're circling it. <laughs> Before we were like, uh, we were like big bang, like planets (laughs) flying away from each other at the speed of sound. And now, I don't know, we're slowing down a little bit. Gravity's bringing us back. With HSP, we were definitely balking up the wrong tree. (laughs) (laughs) You're, you're, Uh, you're lost in this case because you're busy doing something else. Yeah. You're, you're, you're (laughs) You're obviously distracted. Yeah. No, I'm 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 uh, playing up for our our uh, Romanian audience. You know this this <laughs> podcast <laughs> this podcast is about to go nuclear in Romania. <laughs> you're, you're you're also working on your type five for uh, opening night at the Apollo. So it's coming together nicely. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Katrina, help us now. Well, so so sometimes I present these cases, and I wonder, especially uh, with with you, Dr. Katzen, whether it truly is the end of the story. But from our case standpoint, and from the various physicians involved in her care, this was felt to be consistent with inflammatory bowel disease, and that was uh, after getting the biopsy results back as well from her colonoscopy. Um, it is, as you say, a pretty rare presentation. There are um, several as a case report and then a you know, systematic review, but it only looked at really 32, sorry, 32 patients. And then they did an associated systematic review, which does show situations where there were uh, was cutaneous vasculitis in patients with Crohn's disease. So they did a review that identified um, there were five studies of patients who had isolated cutaneous vasculitis. And then uh, in, yeah, five studies, and then in review of the literature, there was uh, 66 cases of isolated cutaneous vasculitis. Um, So it is seen, but more rarely in uh, association with Crohn's disease. The case for summary that I was talking about was a 52-year-old gentleman who presented with a rash of his lower extremities um, and a biopsy showing a leukocytoclastic vasculitis. And so there's some thought that perhaps um, direct exposure of the immune cells of the inflamed intestinal mucosa to fecal antigens might lead to the formation of immune complexes, um, which deposit in the walls and cause a vasculitis. And um, when we did get, uh, finally, four weeks later, her immunofluorescence staining back, um, it was... <laughs> four weeks? <laughs> That's how good, long the reagents were going to take. Good Lord. <laughs> That's so long. So um, it was... It's negative. over. <laughs> it's over by then. <laughs> yeah. True, but at least you can, you know, then you have at least something to, to go on. So negative for IgA and IgG, IgM and, and complement at that point. So, so I just uh, I just wanted to share with you, I looked, uh, I had occasion because I've been following a patient who's had recurrent ulcerations in his ileocecal area with fever and abdominal pain over the course of the last two years. And there are studies that look at trying to distinguish between inflammatory bowel disease and TB. And the studies are mostly out of Asia, as you might expect, and there's no conclusion. And at times, a trial of anti-tuberculous therapy, at least in that context, in that area, has has been, you know, is is one of the recommendations. So even though the lead, and and I'm not suggesting this patient has TB. I'm just, I guess, what I learned from reading this is that there's nothing that's diagnostic of of Crohn's disease, even the classic granulomas. It still has a differential. And I'm, I'm not suggesting this person doesn't have IBD. 
it's still a bit uncomfortable because you're talking about a really unusual component with having this particular rash. You know, Katrina, when you mentioned the the 32 uh, patient uh, like case series or review of the literature, um, I recalled that li- like literally one week ago, I referenced that that article. Um, because I was seeing someone with ulcerative colitis and tachyasu. And it turns out that that article was written by a lot of Canadians, including a, a Natasha Degan, um, who is a, a local vasculitis expert, and, and a couple of people who are my old bosses. So I'm I'm super embarrassed that I didn't <laughs> tr- trigger to that like a lot sooner because I like literally just read it and uh, immediately forgot it. And um, but but that's really interesting to think about like IBD, Crohn's or colitis as like, they're part of like the flavor of, of different other diseases. So it's like, like Barry's saying, not always on its own. There are other things, there's a lot of overlap between like these different specialties and these different things we think are siloed. And inflammatory bowel disease is, is definitely like one of those cross symptoms that can be part of multiple different diseases. And I definitely am going to keep that higher on my list uh, next time. Thanks for the thanks for the lesson. That's really yeah. helpful. Thanks for the humble pie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, you're welcome. I can uh, give you a little bit of, of closure just to, as to how she's doing on the whole. So she was discharged on the 40 milligrams of prednisone and then has subsequently been tapered off. Uh, she was started on Humira or Adalimumab by um, the gastroenterology team, and she's feeling much better. Interestingly, she finds that her symptoms come back with certain foods of dairy, meat, and raw vegetables and fruit peels, which I don't know if that's either here nor there. Um, but interestingly, she after she eats these foods, she'll often notice that the rash comes back and then she gets abdominal pain again. Uh, so for her, that's sort of an indication that things maybe are, are flaring up. I don't know. That's all based on her subjective experience. But um, it was just, I think, uh, interesting to, to have that follow up. So that's, yeah, I think that's, you. I think that's really, I think that's really interesting. And it suggests to me that, well, we may be having another podcast <laughs> next year. You might be right. All right, Katrina, thank you so much. That's a, that's a wild case. And uh, yeah, seriously, a good, re- good reminder for all of us. Thank you. Yeah. Thank thanks you, for joining Katrina, us. That was wonderful. So I think that's it for this episode. Tune in next time. We'll uh, be putting out an episode in just a couple of weeks. Thanks so much for listening. Bye, everyone. Bye. Thank you. Bye. This podcast was produced by Nikki Thorpe from Bronet Consulting. We are supported by the St. Paul's Hospital Foundation and QXMD Read.